All right. Well, it's good to see all of you. Uh, we are wrapping up our series uh, today, The Disciplines of Grace. And we felt it was appropriate. I, I usually pause whatever series I'm teaching in to do a special Christmas message, but the, where the series landed, it just seemed actually like it was the perfect message to not only close the series, but to also celebrate Advent and the incarnation, the entrance of God into his own creation, his willingness to give his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This great sacrifice uh, that comes from a God who recognizes our inability to save ourselves. The gospel is good news because it's down to earth. It's about a God who comes down into the midst of our mess and makes that mess his own. Uh, This is what we celebrate uh, when we celebrate Christmas, but it's also what we celebrate when we celebrate Easter. And really for us as believers, every day should be a celebration of incarnation and resurrection. Uh, And so... I think it's important for us as we close out and as we've called this the disciplines of grace uh, is because disciplines can quickly become a type of legalism when we try to exercise our out our salvation to work it out uh, it can quickly become trying to complete in the flesh what God has begun in the spirit. And what we need to remember is that our disciplining ourselves toward godliness, that the disciplines are not us doing different things to prove to God that we love him or to make him love us more, but it is the outcome of being ones who have experienced God's grace, his one-way love that has come to us in Jesus a God who on our worst day is crazy about us, a God who revealed his love toward us when we were still dead in our sins. Before we even had a thought about him, he was already pursuing us. And any inclination to pursue God uh, began with his already moving. We like to use the words of Tozer, every movement we take toward God, God is always previous. It's what theologians called prevenient grace, that God comes before every action that is taken uh, because he's a God who is in the business of moving into the lives of sinners like you and I and turning us into saints. What a powerful reality that is. Well, we are gonna consider the discipline, and I would argue that it is a discipline or a practice uh, of receiving. Now, people don't think of receiving as a discipline, but I would argue it's actually one of the hardest, and yet it is central to the Christian life. Too often we turn faith and receiving, those two, and we considered faith as a discipline as well, but too often faith and receiving are seen as just something that we do in that initial act of believing. I receive Jesus' work on my behalf and I put my faith in him that I might become born again. And then it's all, you know, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. I mean, that's often the way that Christians act is that Jesus saved us and we couldn't bring anything to the table other than saying, yes, I receive you. 
And then the moment you're saved is like, but now you've got to do a whole bunch of work to, you know, keep yourself in. <laughs> and you got, we got so many ladders for you to climb. No, we need to keep a Christmas spirit alive year round because the disciplines should flow out of the gift we already have. We're not working for a gift because then it wouldn't be a gift. It would be a wage earned. But grace is not like a wage earned. It's a gift that's given freely and has to be received freely. But it's not received once and then you just work. No, the work is maintaining that posture of reception. Uh, e. Stanley Jones said that Christianity is all receptivity. And, and I think that this actually speaks to even the Christmas season because you think about this, we give gifts to our children. And as kids, we, were, we lived for Christmas and it wasn't because we were primarily excited about the birth of baby Jesus. Uh, uh, no, we were excited about Christmas because it was the month that we got a bunch of stuff that we didn't deserve. It's the month that it wasn't based upon our birthday. It wasn't based upon anything other than this strange tradition in which people spoil their children. And even as adults, I still, I mean, I look forward to Christmas and I can still act like a big baby if, you know, I don't really get much. Because I still feel, I mean, we all like our toys. They just get maybe a little more complicated and expensive as you get older. Uh, but I, I, I think that the gift-giving aspect, yes, we live in a materialistic society, and a materialistic society uh, derives all of its meaning and value based upon what you have. And so it becomes a thing that separates the haves from the have-nots. And because of that, we can often have this sort of distaste for the practice of Christmas in regards to gift-giving. But I actually think that gift giving is one of the ways that we can become, uh, it becomes a visible sign for what it means to receive grace. And I think it's a beautiful thing. And I think that receiving, I have found, is actually more difficult than giving. And the example of this is that when COVID began, uh, we had a bunch of people immediately respond by giving above and beyond their normal giving because they were concerned that there was going to be a lot of needs within the church of people losing their jobs. And we ended up with thousands and thousands of dollars being given to benevolence. And we made multiple statements to the body saying, if you have lost your job, if you are in need, we want you to let us know because we want to give. Uh, to you, this is what we are called to be as the body of Christ, is to care for one another, to carry one another's burdens. And the response to the call to let us know if, if anyone needed help was crickets. So few people asked for help. And the reason is because for most of us in a materialistic society where we are judged based upon what we have and don't have, it becomes very difficult to admit that we need help. It's humiliating. It, it, it seems needy. It's, it goes against the sensibilities of what it means to be a modern people. And yet, we need to remember as children of 
God, that the whole premise of our walk with Jesus is built upon our desperate need, our continual desperate need for help, that we are a people that are absolutely lost unless Jesus actually helps us. And that should be reflected in how we live life together is that it's a joy to give, but it's also a joy to receive because all of us are gonna have points where we have the ability to give and there are gonna be times when we need help. And I, I just wanted to say, Darcy and I just experienced this recently where, where a couple helped us in a moment of need and they said to us, and it was really hard for me to ask for help, and when they helped us, they said, thank you so much for trusting us with your need and giving us the opportunity to bless you. And it was so humbling and I realized this is pride. It's pride that prevents us from asking for help. And so I wanna talk with you today about how necessary it is to view receptivity not as a one-time act of when you accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, but it's a daily act that actually creates in us or generates in us the ability to be more generous because we in humility understand our own desperate need for help. But it, but it also, it breaks us free from the ways of this world which enslave so many and create so much heartbreak and misery. Receptivity is nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, it's something that we are told again and again that we are to ask and receive. Uh, that this is the posture of the Christian life. Uh, and, you know, I often ask something, do, do you have the gift of receiving? Most of us had the gift of receiving as kids. I don't know if any of you uh, have any kid where, like, you got them a present for Christmas, the dream toy, you know, you get your eight-year-old a uh, little Nintendo Wii or, you know, whatever the newest system is. They aren't like, I, there's, I, I can't comfortably accept that, Dad. That's not, gonna, that's not gonna be uttered from the lips of your children. And there would be something fundamentally wrong with your kids if that's how they responded to gifts. Uh, I would argue that it's probably something you produced in them if they feel guilty receiving gifts from you. Uh, in fact, kids gladly receive gifts without even a thought, with joy, which is what I believe our Father wants us to do, to receive from him the gift of himself. So I wanna just create just a, just a few very practical steps on how do we discipline ourselves toward a spirit of receptivity because it's actually necessary to live the Christian life. The first thing we need to understand is we need to recognize our need. In Luke chapter 18, verse 17, it says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, when we read whoever does not receive the kingdom, and by the way, to receive the kingdom of God is to receive Jesus because we can't talk about a kingdom without a king. We're not receiving moral law, 
although the kingdom has its own ethics and we can't deny the ethics of the kingdom and I think a lot of Christians would like to have Jesus without his ethics Uh, but I think what we need to first and foremost understand is to talk of a kingdom is to talk of a king and then to talk of a king's people and then it is out of that to talk of the ethics of that kingdom that are reflected in the people who have received that king now when we talk about what it means to receive the kingdom of God like a child um, I think that when Jesus said let the little children come to me for of such is the kingdom of God he was making both a negative statement and a positive statement the negative statement is that children had no rights and were seen as actually in 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 ancient days children were kind of seen as like something you tolerate until they can actually be productive in society Uh, and so a child represented one who had no rights and really was barely recognized as a person of value. And so Jesus is pointing out that the upside down kingdom is that the way up is the way down. That, that you have to recognize that you need help. A child is helpless without, and, and when, he, when it says he let the little children come to him, we're talking about very small, like toddlers, babies, because uh, he was holding them on his lap children that literally could not survive that that age where they could not survive unless there was adults taking care of them so when you think about that there that's that negative helpless side but then there's the other side as well which is the divine like qualities of childlikeness which is very different than childishness and that Jesus is saying that we've got to recognize our need but that that need is connected to childlike vitality wonder an unconscious faith like our kids our kids at least and this is this has been something for Darcy we you know I'm a pastor we've lived on a single salary our kids have grown up in the church in a city like Portland it's not like you know we I talked last week about the romance of thrift of of learning how to uh, how to create beauty and to, and, to, and to do it in a way that, that is not driven by, by excess and extravagance but flows out of the ability to be creative in, with what we have to make the most of what we have uh, so that we can continue to reflect the gospel in our daily lives. But with our kids, there has been at Christmas, it's a time where I like to basically spoil them like we we go beyond probably what we should and we don't do it because they deserve it we do it because we're crazy about them because i don't care if they've been the lamest most difficult children in the world which is actually not even possible i don't even have a lens to see them like that whether it was true or not is that is that we want to bless them we want them to know that they are loved, that we are crazy, but that we will sacrifice our own comfort to give them things that they don't need because we just want to reflect that sort of radical grace that we believe Jesus reflects through this. Now, I think that it can be symbolized in the gift for Christians that get all weird about gift giving because they don't want to be seen as materialistic so they withhold from their kids. Like, I don't hold that view 
and every family has their own prerogative. But I knew what it was like to grow up with, in a poor family where I got letters from Santa saying that Santa was all out of certain things because my mom couldn't afford to get me what I asked for. Uh, I, and Santa was, Santa was all out, and so I was out of luck. I know what it's like to, to grow up with that kind of reality, but here is the, here is the beautiful thing is that Jesus said, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? And the difference between, and I'm a big, I'm a big fan of Santa personally, but the difference between Santa and Jesus is pretty significant. Santa keeps lists of who's been naughty and nice. Jesus doesn't need a list because he knows everybody's naughty, and yet he still gives gifts. And I think that what we need to understand is that we have to recognize our need because it's hard to receive help, which is really what Jesus comes to give. He is the fulfillment of the word help. Like the Alcoholics Anonymous group, the first step in the 12-step program is recognize that you need what? Help. And actually, the movement toward freedom from the alcoholism is recognizing that you're an alcoholic and that you can't fix yourself. And so it is here that Jesus says, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a little child does not enter it, is that without his help, like a good, the good father he is, I'm, I can't care for myself. I can't do anything. This is why the first beatitude is what? Blessed is the poor in spirit for theirs is what the kingdom of God it is the one who recognizes their need that finds that they have received the greatest treasure that one could ever get because the greatest gift that God gives is God himself and so it is for us to to exercise that spirit of receptivity is to not one time say, Jesus, I need your help. Now that I've got you, I don't need your help anymore. In fact, the longer you walk with Jesus, the more dependent you should be upon him for help, which means this is something now that I need to exercise daily is the daily reminder. Like an AA meeting, someone, the, you, you begin an AA meeting, always begin the AA meeting like is I'm so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. The proclamation that I continue to call myself an alcoholic even after I've been freed from the alcoholism is that the confession of my brokenness apart from the context of the community uh, is, uh, is, is the means by which I stay in the community and continue to find freedom from that reality. And that's why someone actually brought up with me recently, like, you talk about us being sinners too much. You need to talk about us being saints more. And I'm like, no, no, we are saints. But a saint is just a, a sinner who's forgiven and knows they're a sinner. And they also are the ones that know that they're saints only because they're in Jesus. And so you can't actually separate saint from sinner because you can't be a saint unless you're a forgiven sinner. And when I say I continue to recognize my sinfulness, the only reason I'm able to even see that I'm sinful is because I've become a saint because I don't believe that even one can have a full recognition of how sinful they are until they've been born again. It's actually the presence of God in our lives and the light that Jesus shines into our hearts as we recognize our need and open up our lives to him that he begins to reveal more and more just how lost we are without him. 
And so the first step in exercising receptivity is recognizing our need. I, I think that this is why what we bring to Jesus is one thing and one thing only. I like it. it I, it's summed up perfectly uh, by Capone when he said, we bring our deaths to his death so that we can find our resurrection in his. The only thing that we can bring to Jesus is our dead bodies, but the good news is that he seems to be in the business of bringing dead things to life. And that's why we need to bring, come to him every day and say, I need you. This is the joy of receiving because when we recognize the need, Jesus is ready to meet us. Secondly, we need to ask in faith. Not only do we need to recognize the need, but we need to ask. I mean, it says that whoever asks, receives. And I think that what we're asking is, is that, asking for his resurrection life. We come to him with the need ourselves and what we find is the fill. Look what it says in James chapter one, verses five through eight. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given him, but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that they will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So here is one of those profound promises in Scripture that God is ready to give us wisdom. He's ready to actually illuminate our darkened minds, but we have to ask, and the asking has to be in faith because how can we expect to receive anything if we don't even believe that the giver actually gives anything? And so th this becomes, faith becomes the vehicle by which the very gift, which is Christ himself, comes into our lives. And I always like to say, um, you know, when I came to faith, I had spent my 20s doing a lot of unfortunate things that led to the diminishment of clear thinking. There's enough kids in here that I already have had to check what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> and so here, I'll just say this. I did a lot of hard living that impacted my ability to think clearly. And I remember when I got saved, I was terrified that I had done so much damage to my mind that I would, I would never be able to really be as clear and as I wanted to be. And I came across this passage and I, was, I had such a simple childlike faith. I'm like, I don't know, it says it right here. It doesn't say if any of you lacks wisdom, go to college. It just says if any of you lacks wisdom, not that that's a bad idea. Um, and I probably should have done that too. But it does say if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. And it was, but when you ask, you have, you have to believe that the one you're asking actually is there to fulfill. The, the problem is, is that we think that asking God is like a free ticket to ask him for whatever you want. God is in the business of giving us what we need, not what we want, because what we want is fickle. What we want is cool today and not cool tomorrow. God is in the business of doing things that actually have eternal value, things that actually shape us more and more into his likeness. So even his no's are answers to our prayers because he knows what's best for us. I mean, what does he say? If your child asks, you know, 
for bread, what are you, you going to give him a snake? No. Uh, you're going to give him what, what nourishes him because you love him. And I think that this is the thing is that we come to God and we ask. And when I, when I read this passage, wisdom, Jesus himself is the logos. He is our wisdom, just like he is our peace. There is no peace, lasting peace, apart from Christ's presence. He himself is our peace, we're told in Ephesians. We talk about rest from Jesus. Jesus, I need rest. He himself is our Sabbath rest. Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. How do we receive rest in Jesus? By being in Jesus. So here it is. How do we receive wisdom? We receive the one who is wisdom personified. This is why it says, we have the mind of Christ, writes Paul. Uh, That doesn't mean that you're thinking just like Jesus. It means that you have available to you if Christ is in you and you are in Christ access to the wisdom of God. And too many of us are not experiencing that reality because we are not asking in faith or we're not asking at all. We receive first and foremost by recognizing that there's a need. And maybe one of the problems is that we don't think we have a need and we don't think we're lacking in wisdom. But I think the wise man, the wise woman is the one who recognizes that their understanding is lacking apart from Jesus's continual illumination. I don't need the wisdom of the world. What I need is the illumination of the spirit that can help me actually understand the world in which I live and how to navigate the insanity of this world without losing hope. And I think that that comes through a daily surrender to the one who has all that is necessary for living victoriously. And this is why it is a continual exercise of the posture of receptivity. We need to practice receiving. Too often we try to live through our days without the power or the help of the Spirit. We compartmentalize Jesus to Sunday church and then the rest of the week we're living for ourselves to our own devices and we can't figure why we keep, figure out why we keep making messes of our lives. When the giver of good gifts is ready to give us the great gift which is himself, we ask in faith. This is why it says in Proverbs chapter two, if you receive my words, and treasure up my commandments with you. If you call for insight and you raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it in hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God for the Lord gives wisdom. Notice the call in Proverbs is to seek it, to hide it in your heart, to write it down, to to take the word of God into your life. But ultimately, the Proverbs also recognizes that it's God who gives and it is we who receive. Third, we need to draw near. We recognize our need, we ask in faith, but we must learn what it means to draw near. And it really is connected to that word of abiding. The word abide means to remain in or to make our home with. And I think that we lose sight of this when it comes to our understanding of who Jesus is. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter four, verses 14 through 16. This is such a powerful passage uh, and really speaks to the incarnation that we can trust Jesus because of his entrance into 
humanity, taking humanity upon himself. It says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession, holding fast to this confession, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So notice, there is one of the key realities, that first principle, recognize that you're weak, that you are helpless, uh, and that Jesus understands those weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. He understands what we are confronted with. I don't know why we are so convinced that 2020 has taken God by surprise. And if you don't think that you believe that, why do so many Christians act like it? Because to me, the proof that you do believe that Jesus fully understands and already knew it was gonna happen and has not lost his sovereign control of his redemptive story, we act like he like, this was like a missing chapter in his own book or something. Like, oh, what a horrible year. I can't wait till this year's over. How many people find themselves saying that? But time is all we have. Why are you so in such in a hurry to get rid of the only thing that actually is real, which is right now, and you don't even know that you're gonna be alive next year, assuming that you all, all will be. Our desire to get through time to what we think will be a better time is actually a faulty thinking that shows once again that we're not living in a total dependence upon the Lord of time himself, Jesus, our sympathetic high priest who understands every aspect of our broken nature and our broken world. And it says this, yet he did it without sin. So let us then with confidence do what? Our confidence isn't in our politics, our confidence isn't in our, our government, it's not in our, our culture, it's not in our country, our confidence isn't in our city leaders or our entertainers, our confidence is in Jesus. And I would just simply ask you, what does it mean actually, some of you may be saying, well, what does it actually mean to draw near to a God that I can't see? Well, what does it mean to draw near to anything? We draw near to what it is that we're giving our attention to. We're drawing near to whatever it is we're spending our time thinking about. The, the, the more you invest in a thing, that is what you are drawing close to. So it can be a person, it can be a job, it can be, you know, I feel almost like my house is a living entity at this point because I gave so much time and energy to this gutting and remodel of our home. It's like hard for me to even disconnect from it now. And, and I, I, I'm still like having to sit there and go like, is this really our house? I, and why am I, even when I'm away from it, thinking about that corner that needs to be painted or this piece of trim that's still missing varnish or that, that room floor that has that one nail hole that drives me crazy. I've drawn near to this thing to the point where I can't stop thinking about it. This is how we ought to be as Christians with Jesus. This is what it means to receive him is that we receive the one whom we're close to. And I would argue that you are receiving whatever it is that you are giving your time and your attention to. Uh, so, so it's not a question of, well, if I'm not receiving Christ, I'm not receiving anything. No, no, you're receiving all sorts of things all the time. The question is, is, it, is, are you receiving something that gives you life and life abundantly? We have to draw near. 
And I love this passage because it says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive what? Mercy. Once again, it's hard to receive mercy if you don't recognize that you deserve judgment because mercy is not getting what you deserve, which is judgment. You're getting the gift of life instead because that's what God is like, like a good parent who spoils undeserving kids on Christmas. This is what our heavenly father does. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us the opposite of what we deserve. Instead of giving us condemnation, he offers to us the free gift of life and forgiveness even when we weren't seeking it. That Jesus died for us while we were dead in our sins. This is the power of the gospel. And this is why we should not be afraid to draw near because Jesus has entered into our sinful humanity and there is nothing that you or I can do that takes him by surprise. As Martin Luther said, sin boldly, but love the mercy of God more. And all he meant by that is you can't escape your sinful behavior and the good news of the gospel is that God's love for you is not based upon what you do or don't do. It's based upon what he has done for you. And the only thing that will actually free you from those patterns of sin that can keep us in bondage is to cast ourselves in dependence upon the grace of God. We receive mercy, what we find is grace. Notice that. You want to experience grace, we'll receive mercy. To receive mercy is to accept the reality that you are lost without him. But that requires humility because the humility to say, I actually don't have it as together as the world tells me I have to, to be acceptable. Uh, someone once asked me if, if I thought they were an abomination to God and I said, yes, yes I do because I think we all are, including myself, apart from Jesus. And I just remember him saying, I'm gonna have to think about that. That's not what I was expecting is the answer. <laughs> and uh, he's like, I don't know, should I be mad at you for saying that? Or, but then you put yourself in the same category. I don't understand how to respond to that. I'm like, ah, pastoral trick right there. It's rhetoric. <laughs> it's not rhetoric, it's reality. We are lost without Jesus. And I am just as lost as you without Jesus. But with Jesus, we have everything, everything that we could ever want. The one who has God has everything. I love this. We recognize our need, we ask in faith, we draw near, and we receive joy. I think one of the things that we need to hear right now more than ever is that God is after our joy. He is after our joy. He isn't here to make us happy. Uh, happiness is fickle. Uh, the pursuit of happiness, the great American dream, is driven by a very materialistic ideal, which is that a person isn't happy unless they possess a plot of land and can have a house and do the things that Americans get to do in a capitalistic democracy. No, that is a fleeting happiness, and I'm grateful for a democracy and I'm grateful that this is a place where you can own a house and all of those things, it's wonderful. But that doesn't, that's not lasting. I can't take my house with me when I die. I want something that actually has eternal realities to it. And happiness comes and goes, it ebbs and flows. 
But joy, the kind of joy that Jesus spoke of is a joy that flows out of his very presence. Look what was promised to the shepherds by the angels in the announcement that Jesus had been born. In Luke chapter two, verses 10 and 11, the angel said to them, fear not, behold, I bring you good news. Why is this the disciplines of grace and not just the disciplines of earning God's favor? Because we're about good news, not good advice. Good advice is do these things and it'll improve your life. Good news is this has already happened and it's good because it actually has an effect on your life. That's the difference between the gospel and religion. Religion's advice, the gospel is news. It's about something that's already happened for you outside of you and has the ability to transform you if you are willing to receive it. And when we receive it, I love this, good news of what? Great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, what? A savior who is Christ the Lord. Even saying savior takes us right back to the first step. We aren't going to cry out for a savior unless we need, we recognize we need to be saved. And the thing you need to be saved from, just like me, more than anything else is not the devil or your society. The thing you need to be saved from more than anything else is yourself. (laughs) And the worst master you will ever face is yourself. And this is why we need to understand that our joy flows out of our abiding in Christ. E. Stanley Jones had the most beautiful statement in his beautiful um, spiritual autobiography that he wrote uh, called The Song of Ascents. He defines his Christian life as as a great song that God writes through him. And he says, he, that is Jesus, put a song in my heart and now I had something to sing about. Many undertones and overtones have enriched that song but there I caught the standard note, Jesus. You guys, the joy that comes from receiving Christ is this very reality, that our life is a song. Think of it as this great musical composition, and there are undertones and overtones. There are dissonant notes that come from trauma and painful things. We just lost a child in our congregation this week. That is a traumatic thing. We've seen victorious things. We've also had a marriage two weeks ago. Beautiful, overtones, undertones. Melodic notes and dissonant notes. But when Jesus has our life, he himself, A, holds the keys to life and death. He himself also is the author and the finisher of our faith. He also is the author and finisher of the redemptive story that we are a part of. And we can trust he knows what he's doing and he knows the story that he's telling. And we know the ending and it's good. And because of that, we can have joy because we know that even the most dissonant notes that threaten the composition of the song that our life is telling or singing, 
he has the ability to weave those dissonant notes into his redemptive music, making something beautiful out of it. And I believe that Jones has the key right there to what it means to receive joy, is that we receive joy when we find that there is this central thread that pulls the dissonant notes together into the beautiful, the undertones and overtones, that the central note that, that weaves the whole song together is Jesus himself. These things, Jesus said, I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Keep in mind that he spoke those words on the night of his betrayal and arrest. As he was about to be beaten beyond recognition and crucified for crimes that he did not commit, taking upon himself the brokenness and the sinfulness of humanity, past, present, and future, he says, I want you to have the joy that I have right now. And you're gonna experience it in the midst of the tribulation because he says, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, rejoice, because I have overcome the world. This is what it means to receive the living Christ in the days in which we live. Are you marked by joy? Are you a person who is dependent upon Christ for everything? He is the gift that you and I need to receive daily. And this is why we must practice receiving each and every moment of every day because God is in the business of continually giving his kids himself. What a good father we have. What a good Jesus. May we worship him in spirit and truth this Christmas season. May we reflect the joy the world so desperately longs for. May we be witnesses, pointers to the living Christ in these days. For dark days, can be dispelled by the smallest amount of light. And Jesus is the light of the world. Let us not hide that light, but live in the light of who Christ is, in the light of eternity. May we receive from him all that he has so that others may receive him and discover salvation once and for all. Amen? Jesus, we love you. We come to you this Christmas season and we pray that you would give us the spirit of receptivity, that we would recognize our need, that we would ask in faith, that we would draw near to you, and that we would receive you because you are our joy. Lord, we need to remember that you have the power to weave together the undertones and overtones of our lives and create this beautiful composition. Thank you that you are in the business of working in the midst of our broken lives. Thank you that we are saints because we are sinners who have been forgiven. And so we come to you empty-handed, for you yourself said, abide in me, for without me, you can do nothing. Lord, we want to be a fruitful people, witnessing to your goodness in everything that we do. 
We love you and we give you this day. We give you this week as we enter into this strange season. Thank you that you are on the throne and none of it's taking you by surprise. It's in your name we pray. Amen.